Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown, and you're listening to episode 21. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time, and I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership, and it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. My guest on today's show is Dr. Kevin Tempe. He currently holds the William H. Dilemma Chair in Christian Philosophy at Calvin College, He has been a visiting faculty or scholar at Calvin Theological Seminary, Innsbruck University, Oxford University, and Peking University. He has written or edited 11 books, published over 50 articles or papers. He is also the founder and president of 22 Advocacy, which engages in educational advocacy for students with disabilities in public schools. He's spoken on disability to both academic and lay audiences around the country and in the UK. Of particular interest for our podcast today is some of the writing he's done on philosophy of disability and also just his own personal story and his own family um, with a child with a disability. And we're bringing him on this show today because I know around this time of year, the holiday season is really difficult for a lot of our families with children who are disabled and also for adults who have a disability. And it can be one of the things that's really kind of not on the radar of a lot of us because we're all kind of having a hard time during COVID. But some of the things that are hard for us can sometimes be additionally difficult for families or adults who have disabilities. Financially, things can be more difficult when there's an economic downturn, when healthcare is already a difficult situation. A lot of the therapies are considered non-essential, and so a lot of these kids aren't receiving the therapies that they need. And because of situations with shelter in place, some of the therapies are just not possible to be one-on-one with, for example, an occupational therapist or even a physical therapist. Therefore, what's going on in our lives around the world right now with the pandemic can just be additionally difficult in societies that have not been very considerate for those who have disabilities. So I'm bringing him on the show today because the holidays are always difficult for families like these, but in particular this time of year. So I wanted us to have more thoughtful um, information about how we can support families like this and come alongside them in whatever way possible during this, this hard season. And also just for us to open our minds to what those who we would label as disabled can actually add to our lives. And so some of us who are feeling lonely or feeling uh, all kinds of things, there's a role for people with disabilities to play that we need, that we can be open-minded to, and the ways that they can contribute in amazing ways in our society, even during pandemic times. So come with an open mind and open heart to all the things that Dr. Kempe has to talk about with us today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kevin Tempe. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lori. Well, I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about today, and uh, I really, I just loved your book, but I first want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, um, tell us about you and your family and the career that you have at the moment. Uh, My name is Kevin Tempe. I currently teach philosophy at Calvin University. I've been here for about five years. Um, I'm about uh, in my 15th year of teaching at college or university level, and I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, my spouse and I have been married for uh, mid-20 years now, and we have three, uh, I say wonderful but tiring children, <laughs> uh, whose ages range from seven uh, up to 12. And uh, in many ways, I think we're just sort of a normal family trying to 
figure out how best to raise our kids and how best to uh, be the sorts of people we think we're called to be and try to figure out how to uh, see the folks around us that might have a, a, a harder time in certain ways and, and need some help. And society doesn't always make it easy for us to do things alone, so try to figure out how to partner with those people around us and, and uh, make our little corner of the world just a bit better. I love it. I'm super excited to take a deep dive today into all these things that you gave us a little taste of there. (laughs) But um, so I read your book, Disability and Inclusive Communities, and I know you've written many books, and that's the first of your books I've read. I'm sure I'll get into some others as well. Um, And shout out to our friends, Chris and Beth Calloway, who introduced us, lifelong friends from college days. Calories are wonderful people. They certainly are. Um, it's awesome when you have two friends that end up marrying each other. It doesn't happen very often, um, but it was really great when the two of those got engaged and got married. <laughs> They're a wonderful couple, not just uh, wonderful people. Yes, indeed. Well, um, so when I read your book, um, you talk about this you know, experience of your firstborn son coming into the world a little differently than what you had anticipated. I think a lot of people have an image going into having children that's a certain way, and it's never exactly like we think, but in some cases it's even more extreme. And so um, I know that he was given a couple of diagnoses. Um, one was a rare one called microdilection syndrome, and then also he has autism, is that right? Yep. Uh, so we figured out when he was about uh, six months old, approximately, that he has, at the time, a, uh undiagnosed in the medical literature uh, genetic condition. Um, there's actually a number of microdeletion syndromes that we've come to learn about, and his is named after the part of his chromosome that is actually missing. So he has 2P15-16.1 microdeletion syndrome, which is about as clunky as of a title you can have. <laughs> it's like a math uh, equation. He's, he's missing just a little bit between the, the 15th and the 16th band of mm-hmm. the short arm of his second chromosome. Um, when, As I said, when he was diagnosed, the geneticist that we had at the time in California said he couldn't find any other conditions, uh, any other cases of it in the medical literature. Uh, in the past 12 years, uh, things have come a long ways. There's now, I think last count, uh, over 60 diagnosed cases. Okay. Um, we know a number of the families now through social media and other platforms uh, who also have uh, uh, individuals with the same condition from mm-hmm. Australia to Europe to around the United States. Wow. Um, the oldest one, I think, is in his early 30s, so that gives us some idea about Mm -hmm. life expectancy, Um, and we don't have any reason to think that uh, his will be lower than than any of our other children, so, but um, uh, we came to find out uh, a number of years later that he also has an autism diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, We have actually gotten an ADHD diagnosis as well, simply so we could try some uh, medication to see if that was going to help him uh, better at school, and it seems okay. to have, uh, have done so. Okay. So yeah, it's been quite the ride for the past uh, 12 years now. Yeah, oh my goodness. It's a lot. It's a lot to comprehend when it's such a rare thing. Um, you know, every parenting journey is unique to you know the two parents and the child, and yet some things seem even way more out of the book. <laughs> There's not a lot of manuals to help you and some specific parts of your journey. And so I would just be curious to know, like what about those differences make your life for your son atypical that you feel free sharing? Um, I did an interview on another, uh, uh, for a a blog a number of years ago. And and that author asked asked me, um, you know, what part of your life is affected by your son's diagnosis? And it was a really kind of puzzling uh, question for me at the time. it's sort of like, well, all of it. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I think that that is still true, but in different ways, right? So we've uh, now 12 years into parenting uh, and 12 years into parenting a disabled child. It's, sort of, it's just become what we do. Um, but especially early on, um, you know, the, uh, the emotional uncertainty. Um, our culture is not very good about thinking and talking about disability. And so there was just a lot, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason I I like to do these sorts of conversations is to help reduce some of that stigma uh, to make families feel that, um, uh, 
you know, there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's, there's nothing wrong uh, with talking about sort of all the challenges of life. Um, certain things were more difficult um, uh, socially for him, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, especially when early on some of his gross motor uh, skills made it harder for, do, to, for him to do some of the things that his uh, peers were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the literature on uh, disabled individuals and friends is, is, is actually just quite depressing. Um, and so, you know, navigating the social dynamics as, as a kid or as the parent of a child um, has been interesting. Um, extra doctor's appointments, uh, therapies. Um, for a while, he was in about 20 hours of external therapy uh, per week. Um, the financial impact of disabilities is, is pretty significant. Uh, trying to find a church was going to understand our family's dynamics and, and you know, the atypicalities that might come up in worship or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, strain that parents and families are required to go to, through to get our kids educational services. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent two hours this morning actually writing an e- email to the local public school district uh, disagreeing with their evaluation uh, that we had last week of our son and the services they wanted to provide for him. Um, you know, extra time on the phone with insurance companies. You know, so, so there's really, you know, nothing that isn't <laughs> shaped by it. Um, I love it. <laughs> but by now, you know, we've been the parent of a, a disabled child for as long as we've been parents and we've known we're the parents of a disabled child for almost the entire time. Mm -hmm. And so for us now, it's just, you know, kind of, uh, what we do. And and, uh, even though it affects everything that we do, it's become how we live now. Yeah. Well, I love how you describe so many of the things you just mentioned in your book. And by the way, for my listeners, I highly recommend you get it. Um, even though Kevin is an academic, he does make it very easy for us to read. And it's not, it's not like those books that academics typically write where it's like the bibliography is the size of like a whole book, but, but it's, you, you really break things down in a, in a smart way, but in a way we can understand and and get through it. And it's very helpful. Um, so some of the things you touched on there just now are, are definitely parts that really, um, stood out to me in your book. And I do want to take a deep dive into a few of those, but I first want to ask you this question. I think it's really important to talk about, um, and just in my own experience with this whole concept of disability, and you do a great job describing this in your book, but I really want to know, like, what has your son taught you and what is raising him meant to you and your family and your community? Because we often think of, well, disability inherently in the word, like dis, and it just sounds like something's not right. But there's a lot that is right, and there's a real gift there for us. And you talk about this. We, we, we become holy together, and part of being community is we're all vulnerable, and we all need each other. So I'd love to know more about what he's taught you and what he's meant to your family and your community. Yeah, I mean, you, you learn a lot about everything when you're a parent, right? And so there's ways in which I have learned uh, from all of my children. Um, I've learned to braid uh, to help with our daughters. Um, <laughs> I've, I've learned to finger knit. You know, I mean, you're always learning uh, uh, stuff. Um, but not all of that learning is, is, is equal. Um, I mean, I grew up in, in the Midwest. I'm originally from Ohio. And... Uh, you know, I don't remember too many disabled kids in my early childhood experience, mm-hmm. uh, interactions that I did have with them. Probably, you know, if I look back on them now, they would really pain me for the way that I thought, the way that I interacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though my father-in-law, for as long as I've known him, has um, been an amputee, he lost a leg in Korea. I just never really thought, like, the direct impact of disability on anybody's life, because it really hadn't affected me in a certain way. And, and so, you know, having a disabled child has had has forced us to to stop and think about um, basically everything, uh, but especially how, the ways in which our culture has a certain assumption, has a certain narrative about disability. Um, the, the assumption is that it's bad, right? The proper response um, to finding out that somebody has a disability or has acquired a disability or has a child who is recently diagnosed with a disability is 
I'm so sorry. It's a reaction of pity. It's a it's the assumption that disability is inherently bad, that everybody who has it suffers in some kind of way and they'd be worse off or and they're worse off because of that disability. Um, I remember a few years ago I had our son with us when I was grocery shopping. Um, and I don't particularly like grocery shopping. It's something to be done and to, right. you know, to get done quickly. But I was walking down the cereal aisle or something, and our son was uh, in one of the Caroline's carts. I don't know if you've uh, seen these uh, carts that are easier to get larger children uh, with disabilities into and out of. They're, they're actually really great, really useful. Uh, but somebody at the store saw me uh, with our son in it, and they just stopped me mid-cereal aisle. And, and their response, which again, I think is really telling for our culture was what's wrong with your son wow it made me really angry yeah um, <laughs> and, and my response which might not be the best response because it was rooted <laughs> in anger but i think it gets something right um was well he lives in a culture where you think that you can stop me in the middle of grocery shopping and ask that question right and, <laughs> right. and uh, of course that took them back a little bit and i told my <laughs> wife later and she's like you what um you're like i was grocery shopping bad mood <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, you know, like you know, but, but that that exchange super super common reflects something about how our culture thinks about disability and, mm -hmm. and perhaps the best thing that um uh or one of the best things, our, our, our son is the sweetest, most loving, uh, you know, hug, huggy little kid. He's absolutely <laughs> great. Um, but one of the things that he's taught me is to question that narrative. Mm. Um, and again, it pains me that I had that narrative for most of my life. Yeah. Um, that, that there was something bad about being disabled, that they were less in some kind of way, that they were less valuable, that they were to, to be looked down on and their families were to be whispered about, you know, behind your little, your hand mm -hmm. when you're in public. Um, and, and I came to realize that that's just wrong, that's, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's hurtful and it's harmful and it's harmful not just to people like my son, right? People who have disabilities. But an essential theme of my book is that the whole community is worse off for that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so part of what I've been trying to do is help sort of normalize the experience of disability. Uh, mm -hmm. my, our, our, our kids go through to a wonderful uh, private school uh, that technically doesn't have to do anything about special education, but they do a beautiful job. Nice. And uh, one of the things that I love is that the school recognizes that he gives back to the school, that his classmates are better off because he's in that class. Mm. And I see people that value him because of who he is, even though he's different than they are. And, yeah. and that's what I want our culture to be like. That's what I want all of our interactions to be like. That's what I want neighborhoods to be like. That's what I want churches to be like. That's mm. what I want recreational sports leagues to be like. Yeah. Well, I think you gave a compelling reason as to why you wrote this book. And um, it's on many, many levels, right? You... Um, one of the parts of the book, and I love how you word this, but it's important, it's so important, um, is just the history. So you, you talked a little bit about your personal history, how there was a time where you didn't know, and now you know, but you know, even you are a work in progress, we all are, to try to understand a world that's not something we personally experience, like on a sensory or a bodily level, right? But um, the history is like you mentioned in the book, it's painful. A lot of us don't want to talk about it. We want to it's pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, you know, there was this period of time where history wasn't going forward. It kind of seemed to go backward for a little bit. So um, I know some of our laws in the United States of America, like 1990 was a pivotal time where the ADA and the, I guess the IDEA also were passed. And then we had the um, previous to that, though, we had the Reagan years, which seemed to kind of pull things back a little bit. And then 1990 kind of went forward again. And then when um, President Trump got elected, there was the potential of voting for something different that you mentioned. I know me personally, uh, I was in Singapore at the time when President Trump got elected. And uh, I've never written to any of my senators to say, please don't let that president appoint that person to the cabinet. But on Nancy DeVos, I did because... Um, I have personal reasons to care about um, people with disabilities, um, and I, I'm a mom who's worked with IEPs for 
a child of mine. And so um, it really mattered the way people with disabilities were being described and being talked about and the way our laws were changing. So I, if you want to talk just briefly a little bit about the history and kind of where we are now in terms of the programs and things like that, that might be helpful. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try not to launch into one of my uh, <laughs> lectures of disability history. <laughs> okay, um, sure. But I, I, I remember a student asking me once, because I cover some of this in, in, in my classes, and I remember a student talking, uh, raising the question after class when we were talking about this history. Um, and for instance, the way that Reagan was trying to undermine what little, uh, what few protections there were for disabled students and disabled uh, individuals uh, during his presidency, um, in part as a way to, to, to give him the uh, sort of the end to start undermining some of the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the students say, why do you have to make disability political? Um, and, and again, I'm a philosopher, um, and so, uh, I think that everything that we do is political in a sense, right? So so the, there's a broad sense of what the word political means. It has yeah. to do with the polis. It has to do with the community. Um, and of course, disability is political in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm not trying to make disability political. I'm just trying to let people, help people <laughs> recognize that it already is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the ADA, as you mentioned, was passed in 1990 that uh, gave... Uh, disabled individuals, uh, federal protections. It's sometimes described as the, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, with respect to disability rather than race. Um, federal right to education for disabled students was, was first enacted in 1976. Um, and that was uh, when it was passed. And again, this is right. This is during our lifetimes, yeah. or at least uh, uh, close for you. Um, no, I was one year old, so we're still good. Okay, that's right. <laughs> I'm 1975 birth as well. Oh, hey, high five! Um, but there, uh, only about half the states gave uh, disabled students public education in 1976. Wow. Uh, and then that was turned into the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act in 1990. Um, and I was just reading a document the other day. Every year, the De Federal Department of Education puts out a report on how many states actually live up to the, the requirements of that law, which is now right, 30 years old. Uh, and I came across this document, so I counted. And uh, fewer than half of the states last year satisfied the requirements, according to the Department of Education, of following the letter, much less the spirit, of, of those laws. Wow. Um, almost every time I'm out in public, I'll find uh, a parking lot or uh, a business establishment that is not ADA compliant, that won't have proper parking or auto assist um, doors, you know, or various kinds of things. So even though these laws have been around for a long time, um, laws can be on the books and yet not accomplish their goals. Yeah. Uh, and so then when uh, uh, Trump was making some of his appointments and some of the, the language that his administration used about uh, uh, education protections for disabled students and, and civil rights protections, right? Lots of us got upset. Uh, and yeah. uh, fortunately, um, I don't think as much harm in those particular ways has been done by uh, his administration in the past four years. I think that he's been much worse on, say, the environment uh, yeah. and some other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but for some of us, it was, it was uh, uh, something near and dear to our hearts. The Affordable Care Act uh, um, and its protection of pre-existing conditions, for instance, really affects families. Uh, so when I moved from my first teaching job to my second university, I had to negotiate with the insurance company through my second employer to make sure that our son would not be denied coverage since he'd been diagnosed with uh, these conditions. Yeah. And um, I moved from uh, Idaho to Michigan under the Affordable Care Act, and I didn't have to worry about it at all, right? Yay. And so, so talk about undermining the um, pre-existing condition protections was yeah. was something that a lot of us were were really concerned about. As an instance of the way that, even though not yet perfect, the legal protections that disabled individuals do have are still fragile. Yeah. Um, and it is common. There's something like. Uh, over 10,000 complaints that businesses don't live up to the ADA filed every year with the Civil Rights Division. 
Oh, wow. And um, even though it's the law, businesses aren't actually compelled to follow the law until somebody files a complaint. And so, right, it's just easier and cheaper, and there's a lot of ignorance uh, yeah. for, for people that just sort of contribute to the continued struggles that our society has. Yeah, and you mentioned this in the book, and we, we talked about it earlier. Like, some, when you don't know, you just don't know. And so, I, you know, I can imagine people doing these businesses or just thinking, man, that's extra money for me because, you know, they don't know who it affects. But I love what you talk about in the book, and I, I totally agree with this. And this has been a philosophy that our family has had for a while um, once we sort of began to know and understand, right, which is that um, inclusivity doesn't just help the person we think we're including, but we also get included into their world, just like you mentioned with the school. And I love the story in your book about your friend Stephen in Idaho. Um, it reminds me, and I have a book on my reading list for uh, next year, early next year, which is there's this Japanese theologian that I've read quoted in a couple of books now. His name is Kosuke Koyama, and he wrote this book called Three Mile an Hour God. Um, John Mark Comer uh, in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and also Rich Viotas in his latest book, The Deeply Formed Life, they both quote him um, because he talks about slowing your life down to walk at God's pace, which is more like three miles an hour. And your friend Stephen really just reminded me of that, like on a spiritual level. So I'm imagining Stephen and his um, child they were including you and your child to walk slower for the trick-or-treating moment, but in, at the same time, they were learning something very spiritual and very deep and relational. So I'd love for you to kind of share that story. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lovely story. And this is uh, one of the families that we miss the most. Um, and, and so I'm glad you brought them up. Uh, miss them most after our move uh, to Michigan. Uh, so we lived in, a, uh, in Idaho in a wonderful little subdivision. And we would have a bunch of people over to our house. We'd have like a big uh, chili dinner or soup potluck or something like that. And then we'd have, you know, five or six families and, you know, 20 kids. And, and uh, we would all just go trick-or-treating together. And we wouldn't meet like we wouldn't leave somebody back at home to pass out our candy. We would just take our candy bag with us and sort of give it to the kids you know, <laughs> uh, in the neighborhood as we went. Uh, uh, but this is when our son was, uh, was younger and he had a harder time. He could walk, but it was slower. He got tired. And so within, you know, like three houses, um, other folks were, uh, you know, seven houses ahead and we were kind of, uh, slowly making our way through and and jameson uh while he likes candy is not nearly as interested in candy as as uh like our two daughters and some other kids and he would really get interested in uh when we went up to somebody's front door about going in the house um you know he didn't want to just like ask for candy he just wanted to go in and kind of look around and uh <laughs> that you know slowed us down a bit further um and so as our group was sort of getting spread thin almost right away, uh, my my good, uh, dear, dear friend, Stephen, and one of uh, their boys um, just said, you know, everybody else go ahead. I'm gonna stay back here and, and go with Jameson and, and Kevin. And so we spent an hour walking at whatever pace was best for Jameson. Stephen was carrying their youngest on his shoulders. Um, and uh, we just talked and it was lovely. And, and it was great because it wasn't us having to run to keep up with everybody else. It wasn't that everybody else was like, you know, oh, come on, we need to go, more candy, more candy. You know, it just felt good to not be alone and yeah. to be valued. And, and as I think I put it in the book, um, to have being with us matter more than sort of filling your bag with more sugar. Um, <laughs> and... And I'm a very task oriented person, you know, I get up in the day and I want to, you know, down four espressos and drop my kids off at school and then like tackle everything um, <laughs> as, as wonderful as the academic life is, um, you know, it never ends and we don't sort of punch the clock. And so there's always things to do. And so I just want to get, get a running start on it. And parenting in general is not good for uh, getting things done <laughs> on, on, on your own timeline. Uh, but especially when, um, you know, when Jameson was, was younger, um, eating would take an hour. Mm. Um, you know, you didn't have a 15-minute meal. It was, you know, it took them a while to chew, and you had to have everything, you know, uh, a certain size so that it wasn't a choking hazard and all this kind of stuff. 
and it just forced me to slow down and and that's probably good for me right there's yeah. we're, we're not we're not cheetahs we're not supposed to run through life at 60 miles an hour yeah um and and our other kids have helped us uh you know do this too dad rather than do more email don't you want to read a book with me well <laughs> i think i would emmeline let's sit down um our 10 year old and i are right now at bedtime reading uh to kill a mockingbird together nice and that's a time because i'm you know as i said the academic life is pretty flexible and so i'll help the kids with their homework when they get home at 3 30 or you know make dinner so some of my normal work day sort of gets offloaded to the evening so kids you know go to bed okay now i can sort of catch up on the day yeah um and so I'm always thinking, okay, what emails didn't I get to uh, during the day? But, you know, Emmeline or Jameson or, or our youngest Maggie will sometimes, you know, well, don't you want to do this? Okay. <laughs> you know, right? As, as much as I love my job, as important as I think lots of these things are, you're more important. And so they help me to, to slow down, to focus more and more on those things that are so easy to take for granted. That's so good. I, uh, one of the verses that, um, you know, early on when I discovered I have someone in my family who was struggling with a disability, um, the verses that you mentioned in your book where Jesus encounters this um, individual with a disability and people were asking questions like, what happened? Is it because of his parents? Did they sin and they caused this? Um, and the reason Jesus gives is so the works of God would be displayed in his life. And it's such a mysterious thing to say, and um, it, I think I'll forever be trying to unpack it, but um, so much of how I understand it is just what you're talking about, right? There's, um, there was something allowed, not only for this child, but for the parents, so that God's work would be displayed in the life in a different way. Maybe it's the slowing down of a pace. Maybe it's enjoying the holiday season in a different way. And so you mentioned Halloween in your story, and I know when you talk about eating, I'm imagining Thanksgiving meals with family being different with a child like that. And I know for um, all of us in the disability community, when we have like Christmas time, schedules are off. Even in pandemic, when you've been online schooling, it's maybe additionally difficult depending on the situation um, because, you know, we can't get out or there's long lines at the grocery store to get in now, whereas opposed, you know, that whole experience of having your child in that cart takes longer. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to know as you think about all these families and including your own family during the holiday season that are raising kids like this. And once again, when we say disability, it means a million things. And you talk about this in your book as well. Um, so I'm imagining a lot of families feeling overwhelmed, right? And so what is your perspective on that? Raising an atypical child during this particular pandemic holiday season? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. And again, as you say, uh, you know, disability is, is lots of different things and it's going to affect different individuals and different families in, in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, the move to online schooling in the spring was especially hard on our son. Um, I, I mean, it was hard on our other two kids, um, but it was especially hard for him. He's very routine driven. Uh, he doesn't have uh, sort of the fascination with screens and technology that lots of kids do. And so he just interacts differently with people, including uh, his grandparents, through a screen than he does face-to-face. Uh, -face. Mm -hmm. and, and so it was just, you know, super hard. Um, we're really fortunate that our school has been uh, in person uh, this entire fall. We're one of the few that has been able to, and it's been so good for him. It's been so good for uh, for. Uh, uh, all of our kids and everybody, I think, at our school district, um, you know, but changes to routine, the fact that we can't do things as much is, is tricky for him. Um, we couldn't see any extended family at Thanksgiving because West Michigan is just absolutely awful in our infection rates and yeah. Ohio is not uh, too much better. Um, you know, that, that sort of the understanding that as much as we would love to see people, it's just not safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that there are lots of, uh, not just disabled children or families with disabled children, but disabled adults that yeah. this pandemic has been especially hard on. Um, I have a number of friends who are autistic and uh, for them, social connection is often difficult, right? Yeah. Because uh, a lot of uh, autistics interact differently uh, socially than the neurotypical folks do. And there's more neurotypical folks than there are autistic autistic people and so sort of how you're expected to interact with people sort of defaults to what the neurotypicals like right yeah. so so autistics are at a disadvantage there um 
but then they're especially disadvantaged to some of these changes, right? Uh, so for instance, again, the data on this stuff is, is really discouraging, but um, disabled adults are significantly less likely to have a large number of uh, friends that aren't family members or caregivers. Um, and so all of us, I think, are feeling sort of the social impact of, of the pandemic. Um, but if you're somebody who's already sort of socially ostracized and you're not given a chance by uh, uh, lots of people in your life, right, it's gonna hit you harder um, in various ways. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned in the book, uh, disability comes with financial challenges at times yeah. um and you know the pandemic comes with financial challenges and the holidays come with mm-hmm. additional expense right and so even ways in which um uh you know this is going to be a particularly rough financial season for lots of families um is something that i think you know we need to, to, to think about we might not be able to show our commitment to family members show our love to folks in the same ways that we're used to or the same ways that we've been enculturated that we're supposed to mm-hmm. right like if if pressed all of us would say well of course presents don't you know aren't the best way to show that people matter to us and i think we all say we know that but like all the cultural pressures are to buy more and more things for more and more people um and and so it's really hard to fight against that well if you're already struggling because you've got a disability uh and you're underemployed as so many disabled adults are or uh, you've got a disabled child and your ther- uh, insurance coverage isn't particularly good for therapy co-pays, then, you, you know, so there's just lots of ways from from time to this, the way in which we socially interact to finances to, you know, to, to scheduling things, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lots of things. Grocery shopping takes longer, shopping uh, in the store takes longer if you have to wait outside for a certain number of people to come out. Um, and, and, and really, there's no part of life that, that couldn't be made even more complicated uh, by a disability in the pandemic in the same way that there's really no part of our lives that really isn't affected uh, by, by the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're you know, still in the grips of. Yeah. You talk about this, you know, so many of the things you mentioned in your book. And one of the things that... Um that I, I noticed was you talked about, because um, you wrote this pre-pandemic, but <laughs> you talk about like when there's an economic downturn, a lot of times people with disabilities are the ones first let go in a in a job, in a company. Um, and once again, when we say disability, we mean a lot of different things. I live in the Silicon Valley and a lot of people with Asperger's are highly coveted in certain tech jobs because of the skills um, you know, we mentioned earlier, it's not just disability, there's extra abilities sometimes that people have or they see the world in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's, you know, very widely known that people with Asperger's are often highly coveted in jobs where they can recognize patterns better than some yep. others. And they're more adapted to screens and less likely to have chit chat at the water cooler so long that they don't get their job done or whatever. Um, and maybe they're more fit for Zoom right now, I don't know. But um, but that's not true with everybody of every disability and even with people with Asperger's who aren't in tech jobs may be among the ones losing them during this time. And so it can be really hard hit for this community. Um, and then if you're not able to pay for co-pays for the counseling that you need, and that was really your only friend was your counselor, you know, I mean, it, it's, it can be very, very challenging. So what advice do you have for maybe uh, someone listening who does have a disability? Um, and even for maybe parents, siblings, grandparents, friends, anybody who knows someone who's atypical in whatever way in this pandemic season, um, what, is, what is some advice you would have for them? Uh, I think in general, um, for those of us that aren't as used to the impact of disabilities on our lives, right? we often think that uh, either that it doesn't affect people in certain ways or that like we uh, understand how it affects people even though we, we really don't. Um, and so often the best thing you can do is ask, you know. Um, a number of years ago I was going with, um, uh, to, to Starbucks, right? Remember when we used to do things like that? <laughs> right. Meet friends for coffee? <laughs> uh, I was meeting a friend uh, uh, for coffee and uh, I picked her up and, and my friend is legally blind. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time actually that I had met her. I had been introduced to her through a mutual friend. And so we were getting together to talk about um, some things. 
uh, and, and we got to Starbucks and I was, you know, like we were going towards the door and I was like, wait, oh, this is awkward. Like, you know, do I run in front of her and, you know, worry about tripping over her, her, her white cane to grab the door or how do <laughs> right. I do this? And uh, she just said, you know, the best thing you can do is say, how can I best help you? So it's like, how can I best help you? Yeah. You know, so, so, so ask mm. and then trust people. Yeah. Right. Uh, don't assume that we know better. Mm. Um, and, and I also have to confess, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, well-meaning people can ask, but it's the hundredth time you've been asked that week and you're already tired and you're already, you know, so there's sometimes I know out in public that people have asked me well-meaning questions and maybe in the right way, but it's just the 400th time that I've had to deal with an additional stress on the day. And, and, and I don't have a whole lot of patience. Um, but be understanding of that too, right? Yeah. That, um, you know, this stuff, um, uh, you know, builds up. Uh, I think it's, e- I think it's easy for people that aren't familiar with some of these, uh, things to not recognize how especially hard, uh, it can be. So all of our kids, for instance, are, are affected socially. Um, by the fact that they can't play with their friends and they can't do just, you know, uh, the kinds of stuff that they normally do. Um, our daughters have figured out sort of like, not ideal, but functional workarounds, right? So they'll have Among Us parties uh, <laughs> via Zoom with their friends or, you know, various things. Um, you know, but, but we don't have that kind of, same kind of thing for our son. Right? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's just easy when everybody is stressed in dealing with all kinds of additional pressures, right? To to let that extra thought be one of the things that slips from our minds. And so yeah. I think that sometimes people just don't give the thought to, uh, because the pandemic makes most things harder for most of us, but they yeah. don't give that extra thought that it might disproportionately make things harder for, for somebody else. Um, and so think about, you know, ways in which you can, just reach out and let people know that they're valued. Um, mm. Again, some of my autistic friends, uh, they, they just want to know that, that they matter to folks. Yeah. And one way that uh, they can know that they matter to you is, you know, you talk with them mm-hmm. um, or, you know, you send them a quick email or, so there's just lots of sort of, you know, little things uh, I think that, that folks can do. Um, that, you know, that might get at some of that. And yeah. again, just be willing to give not only families with disabilities, but lots of folks a lot of extra uh, grace and patience these days. Um, you know, again, I, I, I feel pretty hypocritical here because I'm, <laughs> I'm not one who's naturally prone to patience. Um, but, you know, again, this is, I don't think that these points are unique to disability. Right. right? The, the data on how, uh, COVID is disproportionately f- affecting minority communities, or yeah. poor communities, yeah. uh, right, is also pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that we can learn about the human condition from yeah. paying attention to disability. For sure. And I can hear the philosopher in you already, just as you talk about that. <laughs> but like, um, I mean, for sure, like, um, people that are different at least that's how society sees it. You know, I, my undergrad's in sociology, so I, I often come at it from that perspective. But um, when times are hard, like economic downturn, jobs are being lost, you know, we, we see women disproportionately affected right now. They've, um, people are talking about um, women leaving the workforce and we're losing, you know, decades of progress at the moment. Um, and so there are many things like that. I'm thinking about like in the church world, especially where, you know, people, services aren't in person, and then ones that have gone back in person, you only have maybe 20 to 30% of people who feel comfortable showing up because there's people who are immunocompromised or, or whatever's going on. So then there's this fear that church is dwindling. And now, so then you mentioned in your book, like churches will often focus on adding these programs, um, but it feels like such an extra such an extra effort to do something for people with disabilities at the church. And even if they have a program, it'll be more for children and not necessarily for adults. Um, But I'm thinking about those adults in the church who maybe, you know, have autism and they just got fired and they don't have friends and maybe, you know, it's just, we, you talk about intersectionality and I know that's a very controversial thing right now in, in some circles, but I think at least for the purposes of understanding when you have two things that are hard, it's just, doubly more hard right or, or it might be like not doubly more hard but three times more hard or yeah. four times more hard yeah right yes 
So the church has a real opportunity now. My hope and my prayer is that um, just like some of the things that you mentioned, and I've certainly discovered these myself when I was living in Singapore, um, our second pregnancy was twins. <laughs> so that was an, a surprise. So instead of just using the single stroller we had from our firstborn, we had a Viola stroller. And um, and then, you know, we moved to Singapore when they were one and a half. And so getting through busy, like the train that we take every the MRT there, it's like there's body to body, lots of people. And my space that I was taking up just felt like greedy. Like you're supposed to be like one person, maybe one kid in a stroller, but you've got this double wide stroller and it just felt like something was wrong with us, you know? Um, but I always appreciated any MRT stop I ended up at that was friendly for people in wheelchairs because it helped me. And you mentioned this in the book, right? Cause I would get stuck sometimes at a place where it's like there's stairs in every direction. So I had to know which stops were, had a lift or an elevator. Um, and, but all of those things that benefit people in wheelchairs incidentally benefited me and my twins. So in the church and in society in general, I think that's something we need to encourage more. What are your, pers- what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, these days, uh, lots of us are on Netflix and Hulu and, uh, various other kinds of things, uh, these days. And, um, Right. Some of us, uh, when we can't sleep in the middle of the night, we don't want to wake up our spouse with you know, <laughs> being loud. We, we turn on the closed captions. Mm-hmm. Well, closed captions were developed, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, right, for the deaf and hard of hearing community, and and I benefit from that. Yeah. Uh, the door in our garage a few months ago broke, and I had to replace the doorknob. Um, and so we installed one of the bars, right? So it's not like the twist handle; it's the it's the little lever that comes out. Um, and I love that because now when I'm carrying arms full of groceries, I don't have to set them down. I can just use my elbow and push the bar down and come in. Right? It's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> or if, uh, if you go to a business that has the auto assist doors, you know, for uh, uh, for folks in wheelchairs, uh, but you're carrying lots of heavy stuff or you're pushing a stroller, to, right? You, mm-hmm. you hit it with your hip and you wait 10 seconds and the doors open, you know, nice. so long as they're actually working. Yeah. Um, you can go on it. And so there are just lots of things that I think um, if we pay attention to, we recognize that these are not just uh, things for those people. It can often benefit us. And, and you know, you, you ask this question sort of in the context of a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, unfortunately, the church uh, has, has kind of a bad, uh, well, it's kind of mixed history. Um, yeah. You know, but the church in the last 20, 30 years, uh, it says something to me that uh, most disabled adults feel even less welcome in the church than they do in culture at large, at least here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and that ought to give us pause. Um, and, you know, the percentage of seminarians uh, uh, who are disabled is less than college, you know, the percentage of college students, which is less than the percentage of high school students. Um, you know, there's just all sorts of ways in which the church has, again, I think unintentionally, by, by not thinking about these things, made folks feel unwelcome. Um, and, and it's not just the people that are sort of left out from the church community that are worse, right? The church is missing something yeah. by not having those people there in, mm-hmm. the, in the same way that I think churches that don't have women pastors, right? Like are missing something about the fullness of what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. Yeah. Uh, churches that don't have any racial diversity are missing something. Um, and so there's just lots of ways in which by only having a subset of the human population be the people that we think about when, uh, right, we're thinking of the church or mm. friends or, right, uh, it, it's the larger entities that are, dis, right, that are uh, missing out on something too. And so if we can think about better ways to include disabled individuals, people of color, right, the poor, I mean, you know, so any of these soci- uh, uh, socio- sociologically disadvantaged groups that we have lots and lots of good research to suggest uh, are disproportionately disadvantaged here in the United States. Right? But, um, the church needs to include those folks. And in fact, uh, you know, at least on my reading of the gospel, it's precisely the oppressed that Jesus ministered to, right? That's not to say that Jesus only loves the oppressed. Right. Um, but, but there does seem to be something about the Christian message that is 
uh, the people that the world has failed to value properly, those especially are the people on whom uh, I'm going to build my kingdom. And, and I think that that's a, that's a challenge for us, right? That's not something that we're particularly good at doing, I, I, I think. Uh, in part because, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm preaching here. and I, I love it. I'm listening. Taking uh, notes to, on to the, the sermon. Pa- <laughs> <laughs> to the um, you know, part of this is, is that we're, in many ways, we're just better Americans than we are Christians. And we think mm-hmm. about these things in terms of individual effort and individual yep. benefit and individual mm-hmm. freedoms and yep. all that, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's just a fundamentally misguided way to think about it. Just yeah. like if we think of the importance of, of expanding job access for uh, uh, people with disabilities, if we think about uh, people's value primarily in terms of their economic output for a business. I think that just fundamentally misunderstands what human value is about. So true. So true. Yeah. And I'm sure there's major theological and philosophical things you, <laughs> you could unpack there for us. And it's like we're your student and, you're, and all of a sudden, I love it. I, I, I'm definitely doing another interview with you in April when we do Autism Awareness Month. I think there's a lot to unpack there. I'm really interested to know, this is um, kind of my last kind of big question for you, but I know that you talk a lot about systemic changes you hope to see in our society in the book. There's everything from government to education systems. We've touched a little bit on that. And um, yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about earlier that the playing field's just not level. Some people would say the U.S. is a meritocracy. Everybody should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make it no matter what. Um, but certainly, you know, it's, it's not the same for everyone. And there's that beautiful story that you mentioned in the book of the South African man who talks about a whole world where, or a village, I guess, where everybody was in a wheelchair and the people not in the wheelchair couldn't figure out like why they kept bumping their head and things weren't made for them. And suddenly it's like, why, why do you keep complaining? There's a chip on your shoulder. Why are you so grumpy all the time? And it, and when you flip it, I think that story is really helpful for us. Um, and I think we would be willing to change more things if it affected us. But our individualism, our hyper-individualism in the U.S. really is a disadvantage. You mentioned how Christianity inherently in the system, in the concept of it, it requires a dependence, a dependence mm-hmm. on God. And so, um, so much of our American culture can get in the way of that. But as you dream and as you you know imagine a, a country and a, maybe even a church within this country, that would lead the change uh, in some of these systems, what are some of the things that you would want us to think about at least as a step one? Yeah, um, well, step one, I would like to see uh, our, our culture right, follow state and federal law about these things. And again, I've, I've just spent a good chunk of my week having to push back against a, a public school district for, uh, to the best of my understanding, again, violating state and federal law here, right? Yeah. Um, uh, just because laws are passed doesn't mean issues are addressed, right? I mean, yep. this is one of the, the the fundamental lessons of the Civil Rights era. Just because the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1965 doesn't mean suddenly that there's no racism in the United States. <laughs> um, and, you know, at the very least, let, let's... <laughs> Let's do what we're op- legally obligated to do. Uh, might might be a nice first step, um, but then let's find ways to go beyond that, right? To to uh, initiate. Um, one of the things that's most frustrating to me as as a disability advocate and as a parent is that uh, so much of my time and effort is has to be spent getting other people to do these things because yeah. if if we don't push mm-hmm. right they're not addressed um and i'm i'm happy to push if need be right like i don't really thrive on confrontation but right. i don't sh- shrink from it mm-hmm. um but it'd be nice not to have to push yeah right and if other people could sometimes step up and and do some of those things um i had a friend uh on social media, saw some of the struggles that we were going through. He's like, you know, like, I'm in another state, you know, I'm not a, a, a parent, much less a parent of a disabled child. You know, like, what can we do to make your life easier? And I was like, well, I don't know, run for school board. Yeah. Local <laughs> community. Yeah. And do it with an eye towards then reaching out to, to families with disabilities and say, what's not going right in your uh, in your kid's education. Were you aware that this is what the law is? Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, you know, let's let's do something about it. Um, if churches look around and notice that 
approximately 20% of their congregation isn't disabled, uh, which is what the U.S. statistic is, mm -hmm. uh, between 20 and 23%. And again, this gets tricky because you can't always tell if somebody's disabled. Right, uh, the invisible just, ones, uh, yeah. Interacting with them because there's invisible disabilities. Yeah. Um, but if you're not aware that there's any disabled folks in your church, it might be well because you're doing something unintentionally to make them feel like they're not welcome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's... Uh, I've heard businesses, and this came up uh, in the push for the ADA back in the late 80s, you know, well, we shouldn't have to follow the ADA by having a ramp up to our business because we've never had somebody in a wheelchair come into our store. You know, it's so like if they wanted to come in, we had somebody that was working here that used a wheelchair, you know, then we'd build the ramp. But of course, if the ramp's not there, they're not going to yeah. show up for the job interview. Yeah, they can't make it in. And so there's a certain way of being proactive uh, that would just make life easier for, for the folks that have to do the additional time, the additional work, the additional effort. Um, this is what Jackie Scully talks about as part of what she calls the invisible labor of disability. Mm. Right? Um, and the labor gets done, uh, but we don't notice it has to be done often. Um, so, you know, find out ways that, you know, uh, if, if you have a disabled friend, you know, like what's, ask them, what's your biggest struggle in life and figure out how to help them. If, if you got a business, begin a plan with the, uh, to, to hire on purpose uh, individuals with disabilities, right? There's, there's uh, CVS did this a number of years ago. The Meyer Foundation uh, has gotten in on the, on the program. Um, you know, there are ways to, to sort of take the initiative. Um, I'd love for people to take the initiative. Yeah. Uh, but I would certainly appreciate uh, them not making, not resisting yeah. <laughs> when I point out that I'm taking the initiative and this is what we need you to do. Um, the, the, the constant resistance, uh, just, you know, I just get tired and I know that I'm not the only one. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's some things there. I don't know if that fully answers your question. It but. does. It gives everybody a little something that they could think about and pray about and see if that's a good new year's resolution for them. <laughs> so which was what I hoped for. Well, you've been a wealth of information. Um, and I, I would love for you to leave us with any resources that people could be reading over the holiday time, or if there's podcasts or thought leaders that you want to point people to i'd love to hear about it uh yeah I mean, i've got three young kids you know I'm, I'm lucky to hear the new taylor swift album uh in a <laughs> given week when it comes out um uh, i don't ha i personally don't have much time for podcasts and so I, I have no doubt that there's all sorts of fantastic stuff uh out there um one of the best books that i've read uh over the past few years and i've read quite a few uh on disability in the church is let me make sure I get the um, exact title here. Uh, it is a wonderful book called Of Such is the Kingdom uh, by, um, just a second, it's such. It's absolutely uh, really thoughtful by uh, Summer Kennard, I think her last name is, is pronounced. Um, it's a very practical book, uh, you know, like I, I want mine to be, but it also looks at the theology of why we need to think better about um, disability. Um, so, you know, if, if your listeners are readers, I yeah. think that's a good one. Um, if they've got a Netflix subscription, there's a wonderful documentary that came out called Crip Camp uh, about six or eight months ago. And it is uh, a look at the push for disability civil rights in U.S. history leading up to the ADA uh, in, in connection to a particular camp for individuals with disabilities, I think in New York. Uh, but it connects uh, the push for disability rights with a lot of the other social movements of the 70s, uh, 80s. Um, wonderful documentary on that, uh, which is uh, uh, worth watching. Um, there's also, again, as with everything, uh, the pandemic, you know, has, has played havoc with um, academic conferences. Yeah. Uh, but there's a wonderful resource that uh, used to be called the Summer Institute of Theology and Disability, and now it's just the Institute of Theology and Disability. Uh, that, that is a uh, absolutely great conference of academics, pastors, disabled individuals, and you can uh, find many of their talks uh, on, on their website from, from past years. And so if people want to listen to something while they're uh, cooking dinner, 
um, or, you know, uh, relaxing in the bathtub with a glass of wine, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever people have a little bandwidth to do something else. That's a great resource. And I'll make sure I get all those links uh, to you so that maybe you can uh, give them out to your listeners as well. But th- so those are the first three that come to mind right there. That's awesome. Those are great resources. I'm going to check those out myself and dig a little deeper. Hopefully by the next time I interview you, I'll have questions based on those too. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Kevin. Um, If people want to find you and ask you more questions, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I uh, I think fairly easy to find. Uh, If you uh, search for, uh, if you just go to uh, your favorite internet browser and type in uh, kevintempe.com, uh, K-E-V-I-N-T-I-M-P-E.com. It'll take you to, to my website. There's a lot of academic stuff there that lots of people won't uh, want, but there's a page there for our advocacy company, uh, 22 Advocacy. I've got some resources there that I've put uh, uh, together for different people that I've uh, worked with. I've got links to some of the talks that I've done, but you can also do then just send me an email through that or I'm kevin.tempe at either calvin.edu. That's my academic page. Uh, email address or kevin.tempe at gmail.com and and as the story earlier illustrated I spend way too much time of my life on email (laughs) Uh, so if it gets sent in it'll probably get read very very quickly it might not be responded (laughs) but but I think I'm pretty easy to get a hold of uh, in either of those kinds of ways well thank you so much as we're heading into this holiday season it's just a great reminder that um that God is for us, that God is inclusive, that God has created this beautiful diversity. And we certainly don't want to miss out on it. We want to be a part of it, which is really one of the most beautiful parts of the gospel story, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus being born at Christmas, um, being born into a family that wasn't, you know, everything, you know, in a family where there was even a bit of shame surrounding his story with a mom who wasn't married when she conceived him and all the things that he was born into were hard. And um, I think we, we can take great comfort that our God understands hardship and, um, and we're included in a community of people that depend on one another because of what he's done for us. So thanks for the beautiful reminder of all of that. And I just hope your family has a beautiful time together, however crazy and difficult and challenging it might be, that you just enjoy the simplicity of reading To Kill a Mockingbird and all those things together. <laughs> I appreciate that. It was great talking with you, Lori, and I wish the best for you as well. Thanks, Kevin. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't know if you've heard some of the things that Dr. Tempe was talking about before, but I really hope that there were things that you learned and things that you hadn't considered before that now that you know, now that you have this knowledge, there's going to be change in your own life, whether it's just one step, one thing that you do differently Or maybe it's just the mindset shift that you experienced today. I really, in reading his book, so much of it was stuff I already knew. And yet there were so many things I didn't quite understand in that way. And so it was really helpful for me. So I do want to urge you to get his book, Disability and Inclusive Communities. It's not a difficult read. It's It's a concise read, but it's very helpful and very thorough and covers all the things that would really be helpful for one of us to know to just have a starting place for how we can be more of a recipient of the many gifts that people who we label as disabled would have to offer us as a society. And also for us to be more sensitive on everything from making sure ramps are available to uh, being more open-minded about how healthcare decisions in our government affect people with pre-existing conditions, just families who are struggling financially in the pandemic and how, you know, affording therapies may mean really difficult decisions that they have to make in order to help their kid thrive. And just the time factor of having to, you know, face a public school system and advocate for your child to get what they need to have the least restrictive environment for them to learn in. All of those things, I hope that any of these have been ways that you could find a way to contribute and support a family around you. If you know someone who's an adult or a child who's been labeled with some sort of disability, I hope that today you have them on your mind and you reach out and you text them and you say, I heard this guy talk and I just want to know, how can I help? How can I be more of a support? And maybe there's just one thing you can do. Maybe when you go to the grocery store, you add an extra gallon of milk and you drop it by their house once in a while. Anything like that 
that could be helpful, especially during this challenging season of sheltering in place with with children who need a lot of extra help as they're growing up differently and atypically. Or if you know someone who maybe has Asperger's and they've been home and they've been isolated to just check in on them and say, what, what kind of support do you need? Or maybe it's just, you know, hanging out with them online somehow or playing an online game, some way to just connect with them during the season, which can be quite, you know, challenging for all of us. I really hope that this has been a, just a monumental beginning for each of us to go deeper in 2021 and to do better as a society, to be more inclusive, to understand the diversity of all of our brains and how all of us are created uniquely and differently. And uh, just like the society example from the writer in South Africa mentioned a world where everyone had wheelchairs and it was hard for those who didn't, that we would just put ourselves in someone else's shoes for a second and realize, wow, it must be really hard to have that particular disability. And I want to make sure I help create a society where they feel included in every way. And especially in our faith communities, that that would be something we consider during this Christmas time and then going forward into next year, how we can just do better, just 1% better, one step in the right direction. Next episode, you are going to not want to miss my friend Yasmin. Yasmin is an Iranian-American pastor here in the Silicon Valley. She and her husband Ali started Centerset Church, which meets in Santana Row. In uh, non-pandemic times, they were meeting in Hotel Valencia, but a lot of us do things on Zoom as well nowadays. So, uh, But she will be coming to us to give her perspective on the Christmas story, and especially Mary, who often gets overlooked during this time of year. Obviously, Jesus is the center of the story in every way, and uh, but it's also important to realize what it took for somebody like Mary to say yes to what the angel Gabriel asked her to do, which was no small thing for a a 12 to 15 year old girl at the time and and growing up in Israel and all that that meant for her to say yes to, which was something that changed the rest of her life. And so I just wanted us to hear Yasmin's perspective on that story, because it's always good to hear stories that we've heard forever and ever through someone else's lens. So you are not going to want to miss Yasmin this week and the unusual ways that this pandemic has created for us. I, I really hope that this season becomes meaningful in a different way and that new memories are created and that somehow within all of this, we can inside ourselves and think of others in ways we can be more of a blessing to our community, particularly those who are disabled as we were thinking about them today, which I think is really one of the main gifts of Christmas is the gift that God gave us. And therefore, in turn, we want to be the kind of people who are giving toward others. So I'm praying that for you guys. I'm praying it for myself and my family. It's going to take a lot of creativity around this time of year to think through that. But hopefully, especially for those in our disabled community, we can find ways to be more of a gift to them during this season. Take care, everyone. Hope your Christmas is amazing for those of you who celebrate it. And I will talk to you guys with Yasmin next time.